Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Bojan Panjewski. Bojan Panjewski is the Germany correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, a post he's had for over two and a half years now. And before that, he worked in Brussels and Vienna for over 10 years for the Sunday Times. We're going to talk about... But, uh, Germany, Bojan, uh, thank you for making the time for doing this po podcast. Uh, you know Germany pretty well. I know you're a fluent German speaker, so I, I, I presume you're well introduced in all the corridors of power. It has been said in a slightly trite way, but a very, also a very accurate way, that, that Angela Merkel's had a very good crisis. Um, when people were saying she's at the end of her last term, uh, she's a kind of lame duck chancellor, and all of a sudden she's kind of re reinvigorated on the back of the crisis. Is that, a, is that the view inside Germany? Hey, Paul. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. And um, yes, indeed, uh, she has been totally reinvigorated as a political leader uh, by the crisis and by the management of the crisis that she has delivered. And I think people were reminded of the value of having a safe pair of hands in office. You know, she's been a chancellor for 15 years now. And she's, uh, you know, guided the country through a number of crises, uh, to the 2009 financial crisis, the euro crisis that followed, the, the crisis of the Greek debt uh, sort of negotiations, the refugee crisis, and now you've got the, this huge global pandemic. So um, I think if you look at the editorials in German newspapers, you, you get the sense that uh, punditry is quite happy, even people who were critical of her, when they look over to what's happening in Great Britain, what's happening in the United States, what's happening in other countries that were severely affected by this, they have a feeling, I think, a, a sort of a global national feeling here in Germany that they've really sailed well so far through the crisis. And part of the, I guess, part of the merit for that goes in, in the minds of Germans uh, to Angela Merkel and her government. So she definitely has been uh, given a huge boost. Her party is now polling at around 40%, which is huge. Uh, you know, this is really going back over a decade or way more than a decade. I mean, they have, they don't, you know, they, you hardly have that sort of polling in, in, in living memory of politicians. So it reminds them of the good old days when you had two big parties in Germany and that was that. Um, her personal uh, ratings are, are skyrocketing. I mean, they've always been high, but obviously they've they've been slightly they were slightly deflated in in the past two years because people grew tired of you know the same old faces in government, the same old chancellor, mm -hmm. and there there was bickering within the coalition. She's ruling with the Social Democrats. Her conservative bloc is ruling with the Social Democrat Party. And that has been an unhappy marriage for a number of years now. So popularity was waning, and you know she's an outgoing politician, but she certainly has given has been given a new lease of life, and her party is is enormously profiting from that. But she was obviously before the crisis interrupted you. Yeah a kind of lame duck uh, chance yeah. of her own volition because she said she would not do a, a, a mm. fifth term having done already almost four terms in a span of 15 years. Um, so, but, so she's got this new lease of life, but it doesn't change the, the reality, of course, that uh, in, a, in a year's time or just over, she will no longer be chancellor. So mm. what, what are people starting now that she has this newfound popularity and now people starting to think, think well, it's a pity she's leaving. I, I do think that that there is a sense. I mean, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting because um, 
we hardly have examples of, of such long-lasting leaders in, in, in contemporary time. Obviously in Europe, we've got people like Vladimir Putin and so on, which doesn't really compare to how things work in democracies. And, you know, you have to think there are whole generations in Germany that have grown up and become politically aware and they remember no time before Angela Merkel. You know, she's been in power for 15 years. And what, what not many people know outside of Germany that she has been actually in government. She had her first ministerial job. I mean, she became a minister in 1991. Nice. So she has been in the top echelons of government, essentially in government for a very, very long time. And um, I think there is a sense of an era coming to an end, and there is a sense of German re Germans kind of rediscovering their appreciation for the Chancellor, who has been such a sort of a solid steward of the economy, of society, of the political system. And I think there is a sense of anxiety about the future, what happens next. We don't know who will succeed her as a candidate for the chancellery in her own party. That, that battle is yet to be fought, so it's an open run. Um, we don't know what will come out of it in the end. I mean, we, there's a presumption that basically her conservative bloc will most likely govern with the Green Party in the, in the next, after the next election, but we don't know who the candidates will be for the conservatives, so it's all sort of up in the air. And I think I think there will there is a sense of anxiety about about the future because it will be a you know it will be an end of an era after sixteen. She will have served sixteen years as a chancellor when uh, at at the time of the election next year, I think in November. So it's uh, you know it's it, it is an end of an era, and I, I think we will see more and more of that sort of Germans emoting about their their leader because they may have well been tired of her. They may have been holding a grudge against some of her decisions. But I think at the end of the day, uh, the tally is, is probably on her side for the time being. We'll see how history will judge her. But I think certainly the, the, this sort of enormous spike in popularity in the polls, in the surveys, shows that the Germans are, are sticking to her and to her style of government and and you you have to understand i mean being here in germany we really were left untouched largely untouched by this enormous calamity that has weighed so heavily upon countries like great britain you know you've got mm. 60,000 registered deaths by covid-19 uh, you know the prime minister himself got ill he was on the verge of death himself he was put into a in, in intensive care unit he he, he sort you know the, you have the sense of things falling apart elsewhere, whereas Germany really stands tall and, and is, is economically less affected. And certainly the, the human toll has been beyond comparison lower here than elsewhere. Okay. And I think people, people know to appreciate that. Well, you said there's no obvious contender to replace her. Well, even people outside Germany were following not so long ago the idea that she was grooming a uh, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, AKK to her friend, the defense minister, mm -hmm. to be her to be a successor, and that obviously failed quite quite drastically. So, mm -hmm. is, is it seriously such an open field that nobody has any idea, less than eighteen months before the end of Merkel's reign, that who would be her successor? It's it's a very interesting situation. I mean, she did groom Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer to be her successor, and she kind of helped her become uh, head of the party of the Christian Democratic Union. However, uh, AKK, she goes by the moniker of AKK, uh, um, 
didn't really perform well on on the federal sort of uh, stage. Uh, you know, there federal. She she used to be a very successful prime minister in in the state of Saarland, which is a tiny little state with a population of just over two million, and. Uh, and obviously, the federal federal politics is 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 a stage of intrigue, of of you know backstabbing and etc. And she didn't really assert herself. And in that sense, it it has been seen as one of several major mistakes that uh, Angela Merkel has done because she put her trust in in into this person, and and she she sort of propelled her in the top levels of politics. And, and there is a sense that she didn't it didn't work out. The equation didn't work out. Right. Um, there are other candidates, obviously we know who they are. The, uh, one of them is the premier of North Rhine-Westphalia, Armin Laschet. He will not be known to an uh, international audience. He's, he's sort of known within Germany because uh, North Rhine-Westphalia is the most populous of the 16 German states. And uh, by that alone, he has the weight of his party, uh, of his numerous candidates who will obviously support him in any election. But he himself hasn't performed that brilliantly in the actual crisis. I mean, he was actually opposing Merkel because Merkel uh, is quite cautious by nature. So she, she was in favor of a cautious policy. He came out as, as a proponent of this sort of early opening, early lifting of the lockdown and so on and so forth. And that didn't really, I think that didn't really bode well for, for his uh, chances. Then the, the other candidate that is emerging as, as a very strong sort of contender is the Prime Minister of Bavaria, Markus Söder. He is from the sister party of the CDU, the CSU. The, uh, that's the Bavarian sort of uh, branch for, for the Conservative Union. And they always uh, go to elections together. They act as a bloc at the federal level. Uh, it hasn't happened so far that a candidate of that smaller party gets elected uh, chancellor, although there have been attempts. Most recently, perhaps you will remember, you have a long memory, Edmund Stoiber, the, the mm. former uh, prime minister of Bavaria, he, he ran as a candidate for chancellor and he lost to Gerhard Schröder, the social democrat chancellor. So um, that remains a possibility. Maybe Zuna will achieve what no one has achieved in Bavaria before I become chancellor of Germany. There are other uh, candidates who are in the running, but they don't really have uh, a majority backing or they don't have the infrastructure and the networks. One of them is Norbert Röntgen. He was a former, formerly a minister in Angela Merkel's government, and now he's just a simple member of parliament, but he's very active. He's sort of intellectually and politically active in the media. He writes a lot, he publishes a lot, and he's widely seen as, as a sort of a contender who doesn't really stand a chance. But, you know, the field is wide open. Anything oh. can happen. They won't decide before December who the candidate should be, so there, there's plenty of time to go. Okay. Well, before we move on to the EU part of this conversation, Boya, let me ask you one final question then about domestic politics. You refer to the, the, the kind of fractious state of the the coalition and of course for people like me Germany always seems to be a run by coalitions and b run by coalitions that, that fall out all the time but what I'm interested in the fact that they going back to Merkel she seems to become a, on maybe through pressure of the SPD a bit of a Keynesian and interventionist or in in budget terms is that a, mm. a, a fair reflection that that all of a sudden she's realized and, and managed to bring her party along with her that you have to spend money to get us out of this crisis 
Certainly, that is true to an extent. I don't think she had to be pressured much to to make that shift because I think it was it was the nature of the crisis itself that made her understand the the gravity of the situation and the need to basically do away with this German orthodoxy uh, about spending and about borrowing above all. I mean, Germany is now borrowing again from the market. That's a huge step for uh, Angela Merkel, who's been imposing that for, for the past 15 years of her being chancellor. Uh, um, it it is, a, is a huge shift and she managed to, to execute it brilliantly in the sense that she didn't provoke a rebellion within her party. A lot of people in the party obviously disagree but she and her uh, social democrat counterpart, the finance minister Olaf Scholz, managed to prepare the ground in a way that people uh, were left convinced that this, this, there is little alternative to what's happening now. So yes, certainly she has changed. I mean, long gone are the days of Angela Merkel and her um, the policy of Angela Merkel and Wolfgang Schäuble, whom you also remember, the the, the finance minister. Uh, who was a very hardline sort of orthodox uh, um, disciple of, of the German fiscal discipline uh, uh, policy. And I think all that is gone. I mean, Germany is spending like there's no tomorrow. They're borrowing from the market. And indeed, at the European Union level, they are engaging in a proposal together with France, with President François Mac uh, Emmanuel Macron, that they will be building this uh, recovery fund, which will be dishing out uh, money to countries that need it. And this, well, this will not be loans this time, it will be grants. And well, that's that's, I'm going to ask you about that in a sec, mm -hmm. uh, Boyan, as a segue into the E part mm -hmm. of this chat. So we were recording this on the first day of uh, Germany assuming the, the presidency of the European Union. And I realize, and maybe a lot of people don't realize, that the last time Germany had the presidency was 2007. And the, yeah. the chance at the time was Angela Merkel. That's just as a sign, as you said earlier, of her, her longevity. Um, a couple of days ago, as you hinted also, uh, Macron and Merkel met in Germany to kind of prepare the ground. In Brussels, as you know, from your days in Brussels, there's constant talk about the state of the Franco-German engine as a motor for and all these metaphors as a motor for pushing uh, the European project forward. They seem to have a, a pretty good relationship despite differences of view in many areas. This latest gathering uh, earlier in the week in Germany, is that just the latest manifestation of a, a kind of regular chat when they all get together? Or what did this particular gathering have a specific signif significance, especially in the context of uh, the coronavirus? I think it does. I mean, basically, it was the first uh, uh, physical meeting that Merkel has had with a foreign dignitary since the lockdown, since the crisis started. And it's, it's one of the first in Europe. Uh, I think Macron met Boris Johnson uh, previously and Mark Rutte, the, the, the Dutch prime minister. Um, I think it's hugely significant because what's happening now is this. Uh, Germany and France uh, came out with a proposal for this recovery fund a vast sort of uh, pot of money that will be financed uh, by borrowing and will uh, give countries grants un instead of loans. Now, until now, as you know, as everyone who follows EU affairs know, uh, during the Euro crisis, during the Greek crisis, we, uh, the European Union created sort of instruments to help countries with ailing economies to help them when they are under pressure from the markets but all the help was in the form of loans that need to be repaid i mean the interest rates were very favorable but it was always money that you will eventually pay back and obviously that doesn't really help much if you're already if you have a huge debt 
so to add to your uh, uh, books uh, extra debt is, is never a good idea. And now for the first time, they're, they're proposing to give money away without the obligation of, of paying it back. And that, that is a huge step for Germany. That is a huge step for the German conservative establishment. You know, I mentioned Schäuble, the, the finance minister, when he left office, he was uh, sort of seen off uh, by his staff, you know, hundreds of them who gathered in the, in the courtyard of the German finance ministry, which is a building from uh, built in the era of Adolf Hitler, incidentally. Um, and they, 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 with their bodies, they shaped this incredibly giant uh, zero. And, and that refers to what Germans call the black zero, which means a balanced, balanced budget. When, when your books are balanced, your, your government balanced budget, you have a black zero. And that, that has almost a religious sort of character in Germany. So Angela Merkel went against all that and said, we, A, we will let the European Union borrow money in our name and B, with that money, we will just kind of dish out these grants to countries like Italy that need it. Now, that's a huge step. It's not Eurobonds. Uh, some people always argue that you need to have instruments such as bonds for the European Union in order to stabilize the common currency. But it is a huge step in that direction. And the meeting that took place on Monday was basically for Macron and Merkel, according to their advisors who told me this. It's, it's basically it was for them to forge a common strategy, how to go about sort of implementing their proposal in the face of resistance from countries that are now being called the frugal four, uh, Austria, Sweden, the Netherlands and Finland. But on, on that point, to interrupt you, only on this resistance, I mean, it's fine that Germany and France, pretty heavy hitters in the European Union context, agree on the shape and the conditionality attached to the Euro, the, this new recovery fund. But as you say, the frugal four are not exactly on board yet. How, how, not so much how optimistic are you personally, but how do you think that France and Germany are going to play this in order to bring these four, you know, reluctant countries on board? Well, that was the whole point of the meeting on Monday. Uh, they were they were forging a common stance, common strategy, and and that just goes to show how serious. Uh, obviously, we always knew Emmanuel Macron will be serious about this because that has been French French policy for for many years. And and now we see that Angela Merkel is actually serious. She's going to defend her proposal. She's going to lobby for it. She's going to sort of cajole and advise and and so on and so forth. And uh, I don't know the details of what was agreed, but this was the subject of discussion. And I think they have identified the Dutch prime minister as the main opponent in, uh, in terms of, of implementing the, this because the, the four frugal countries, uh, it's funny we call them the four frugals because Germany was the biggest among them until very recently. You know, the frugals <laughs> yeah. were five frugals and, and they were all clustered around comfortably around Germany. And now Germany has shifted. Uh, and I think when Germany and France uh, unite around the subject, it will be rather difficult for the smaller countries to fend off whatever's coming from, from the big ones forever. So I think, although the, obviously they have, each country has a right of a veto in this, in this case, I think they will fold. I think it will be difficult for Mark Rutte politically because he might, his party might be ejected from government because the atmosphere in the Netherlands is not necessarily favorable to any kind of scheme that will involve borrowing money and giving them to Italians and so on. So I think he's facing the, the most severe political challenge at home. 
unlike the, the other countries, I think uh, the Austrians will settle for something like a rebate akin to what the British used to have. The Swedes and the Finns will probably settle for something else. And in the end, the Dutch will have to settle for whatever gets agreed, but it will be difficult with them. And therefore now Merkel and, and Macron need to need to act as one. And they, they will display this, I think, on the 17th of July at the European Council, where this will be decided. And from what I hear, uh, it is expected that another council will be necessary in, in a time-honored sort of EU tradition that to, to, yeah. to, to nail the deals in the small hours of the morning, uh, you know, at the last summit and so on and so forth. So we might expect that. But I mean, the whole point is now that the Macron and Merkel are, are acting together on this. I mean, she's taken ownership of the proposal. It wasn't just a sort of a phantom promise. Quite clearly, she wants to see it implemented and, and she will do her utmost. So I think the the focus of this in diplomacy will probably be the Prime Minister of, of the Netherlands because right. he, he has had this difficult situation at home, so therefore he, he's, a, he's a tough nut to crack. From, from your vantage point in, inside Germany, uh, Boyan, how do you see the relationship between Angela Merkel and Ursula van der Leyen, the President of the European Commission? A lot of talk in Brussels about how close they are, the regular contact they have, and, and so on. Is there a danger of overstating that, or actually are the two people very close and and work hand in hand, especially now with the, the new German presidency? Well, look, I think the relationship has always been excellent. You mustn't forget that uh, Ursula von der Leyen has been in every single Merkel government since 2005. I mean, she has right. been a minister in every government Merkel ever had, and she has only been going up, you know. So Merkel has been her political ally and friend. Uh, her last position in the German government was that of the defense minister, and that was a position she actively sought from Merkel. There was another uh, candidate who was kind of a shoe-in, and Ursula von der Leyen demanded that she get that job, and Merkel granted that demand. So the relationship is pretty good. I think they communicate pretty much non-stop. Uh, they have each other mobile phones. They send each other text messages. That's why they know uh, of course, now you have a different situation where, where uh, Merkel is no longer Ursula von der Leyen's boss. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen is not a mere minister, but she's the president of the European Commission, so she has some clout. She has full independence. But I think the alliance is there, and, and it's probably served well by the friendship between the two politicians that they've built in the past uh, uh, two decades. So I think, I think you know, you, you can't over, obviously overstate these things because the dynamic of politics changes and they might find each other on, on different sides on, on certain issues. But on the whole, it's a very close and functional relationship. Okay. A final question on Boyan, if I may. You know from your Brussels days, certainly, that presidencies, EU presidencies come and go and a bit of fanfare at the beginning and new logos, new symbols, a new, new action plans, etc. And then they finish six months later and, and people say, okay, the, the next one. This is, this is different though, isn't it? It's, it's, Germany is the most powerful member state in the European Union. It hasn't held the presidency, as I said earlier, for, for, since 2007. Is there a danger that, that there are almost too, too high expectations being placed on Germany to achieve uh, certain objectives in the its presidency as beyond the recovery fund, which in itself is a huge task. Yeah, possibly. I think. Look, I think the priorities, whatever the stated priorities are, the real priorities will be as follows. Uh, you know, the recovery fund obviously is number one, and that's tied to the uh, multi-annual financial framework, as we call the European budget. 
And I think that needs to be agreed or, uh, you know, that's extremely important, obviously, for the functioning of the block. Then you have Brexit looming and people have forgotten about it, but not in Germany. They haven't because Germany has a huge um, trade relationship with Britain and it's absolutely crucial for for some sort of arrangement to be reached before Britain leaves the current transition uh, period. And I don't think anyone in Germany wants that relationship to become one of sort of chaos and 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 un, un, sort of unruly, you know, bickering and whatever might, we might expect given given the circumstances. So I think that that is you know that will happen if it does if the transition period doesn't get extended and all the signals are pointing that it won't from from London at least. I think that will be one priority for Angela Merkel to to nail a deal there, whatever that deal might be. It, it will probably be just a sort of a very loose trade arrangement. But nevertheless, it needs to be a orderly orderly transition. Businesses need to know what they're doing, and that is a huge thing actually for for Germans because the the trade volume is enormous uh, between the two countries. Um, then uh, what else you you've got? I mean. Uh, you know, there is the relationship with China, which uh, Angela Merkel has grown incredibly sort of involved with. And one of the flagship or the flagship event of the German presidency was meant to be the EU-China summit in Germany, in Leipzig. And that was unfortunately cancelled, unfortunately for the Germans. Uh, partially it was cancelled because of the because of the pandemic, because it would, would have violated German laws on, on large gatherings. But I think the other part is that Europe doesn't really have a common stance on China yet, and China doesn't seem to be ready to compromise in terms of providing trade access to, to uh, European businesses, to its market. So I think that is something that Angela Merkel will be extremely engaged with. I mean, that's her personal subject. She speaks about it a lot. She has a very strong opinion about it. She's a keen observer of how China has risen from a relatively poor country to a global superpower, perhaps the global superpower in the next years. And I think that's, that's one to watch uh, uh, during the presidency as well. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Bojan Panjewski, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Paul. My pleasure.